Well, it is certainly good to be back in the sunshine state. <laughs> it has been almost uh, 12 years since Carol and I were privileged to worship with you in this beautiful room. And you look fabulous. And those, with you, those of you with name tags look fantastic. <laughs> I thank Steve and George and all of the committee, all of you. If you, have, if you have worked at this Consecration Sunday process, just raise your hand. There's a room full of people that have worked and labored to make this possible, and I thank you for that. I, I thank Michael Lane for not calling the police when he found Carol and I peering through windows yesterday, and uh, he let us walk around. I thank... Um, I thank you for what you have meant to Carol and I and for what, for what you have meant to our children, who are now, our baby is a senior in college, and Nathan's a senior in college, and Sarah is in her second year at Columbia Seminary, and they are people for whom we are grateful every day, and your fingerprints are all over their heart, so we thank you. And it is an honor to be with you. It is an honor to stand in this pulpit, which is a very familiar feeling to me, to be honored to be here. Before our scripture reading, there's some logistics I want you to know about this service. It's, it's an important service, because it's a service that matters to you as a church. After the proclamation, there'll be a time for offering, which is normal for you, but your ushers will also bring to you an estimate of giving card we want you to take some time and, and to fill that out. And I encourage you to, it's an estimate of giving. It's what you, what you hope to give next year. If you need to make adjustments to that, just let the church know. I'm sure they will accommodate. And as you fill that out, I hope you will be as cautious as you feel God has been cautious with you. And be as bold as you feel God has been bold with you. We ask you not to place that estimate of giving card in the offering plate. If you place it in the offering plate, the office doubles the amount. Don't place it in the <laughs> offering plate. At the end of the service, you'll be invited to bring that forward and to place it up front and then to go to the, the lunch that will be over in Kissling Hall. And, and while we're feasting, there will be those who will be taking those those offerings and adding them when we hope to, to share with you uh, the fruit of your good commitment. If I mess that up in any way, just correct it when we get to it. Thank you. Let me invite us to, to listen to our scripture reading. It is from the 13th chapter of John's Gospel. These are familiar words to you. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And as I said to the Jews, I now say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you should also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. 
and the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So in a few moments, you'll bring an estimate of giving card, and you'll place it up here, and you will do so because you have dreams for Riverside. Now, I've not been part of the process that you have been engaged in here, and so I don't know what particular dreams may have been lifted up, but if I might be bold, I would tell you that I have dreams for Riverside. I have big dreams for Riverside. And my dream is that Riverside would just keep on being Riverside. And I think giving to this church to make that dream a reality is not only a good idea, and a strong investment, but it is holy work. You know, the church, the church was not our idea. The church was God's idea. And we live in a time where more and more people wonder about the relevance of the church. Perhaps you have some of those wandering kinds in your own family. No doubt there have been days when the church has caused God to wonder whether the church was a good idea. But it seems, it seems to me that God continues to think that the world benefits from the church. And I want to suggest to you that because our culture is particularly the way it is these days, the church is particularly important. Jesus said the church is the church when you love one another. For a time I thought that commandment, to love one another, was too small. We're the church, we're called to love the world, right? Just to love one another seems hardly bold enough. But I have grown deeper in my appreciation of this new commandment. I have been in ministry almost 30 years now, and my understanding of who constitutes one another has increased. One another is not defined by the choices that we make. To love one another means we love whoever Jesus drags in the door. Sometimes you just have to go with the Christians you got. Too many have forgotten that today. They seek to improve the church by filling the church only with those who have the right beliefs or the right practices or the right this or that. Nothing kills the church as quickly as attempting to secure the perfect church by replacing the Christians we know with the Christians we prefer. We don't love one another because of our virtues. Anybody can do that. We love one another because we have been called to. If that sounds less than romantic, it is. I have come to see this commandment also as a commission. If the great commission of Matthew 28, go and make disciples, if that's the great commission, I think this is actually the greater commission. While the methods are different, the audience is the same. If I understand the text, when Jesus gives this commandment, he is not looking his disciples in the eyes as he talks to them. He's engaged once again in that annoying, annoying behavior that he has. He's looking over their shoulders. He's staring out the window. He's glancing down the road. He is looking at them, the ones out there. I I want them to know that you belong 
to me, he says, and the only way for them to know that you belong to me is if you love one another. The only way for them to know you truly belong to me is by how you treat each other. It's not a call to go and make, as Matthew has it. It is a call to be a magnet, to be a community that is winsome and attractive and gracious. So it raises a question. Do you think anybody knows who we belong to? By the way we treat each other? by the care we give to one another, do you think they really know? This new commandment, it has particular significance today because it is both at the same time a prophetic word and a pastoral word. Let me try the prophetic on first. You know me well enough to know that's not my strong suit. I sometimes think I'm being a prophet, but I'm just whining. It's not the same. The new commandment is prophetic because it seems to me that the macro debate in our culture today is this. Do we belong to one another? Or are we just a collection of individuals? Do we have obligation to one another? Or do we just stand on our own? James Davison Hunter of the University of Virginia says that community, that neighborliness, that belonging to one another is no longer natural in our culture. And to practice it will require some things that seem unnatural to Christians and churches. Why is that? It seems to me this macro debate, are we belonging to one another or are we just on our own, that this has been cooking in our culture for a long time. It was 1859, and John Stuart Mill, an influential British philosopher, wrote a book entitled On Liberty. Does anybody know John Stuart Mill? Oh, that's unfortunate. Okay. I mean, it's unfortunate that six of you do. Otherwise, I could say anything I want. (laughs) Mill believed that people should be free to do whatever they want. The only limit to one's choices is if my choices somehow injured my neighbor. But aside from that, a person should be free to do anything one wants. There is is no state, there is no community that should place any encumbrances on my capacity to, to make my own choices. Over oneself, Mills says, the individual is sovereign. On the face of it, this is exactly how we experience freedom, isn't it? When we are in control of our own choices, it's then that we are free. But I would submit to you from our faith tradition, this is an immature understanding of freedom. When I equate freedom with being sovereign of my life, when my choices are unimpaired by others, I am not free, as Mills suggests, I am just alone. For the only way for my choices to be unencumbered by the needs or choices of my neighbors is to be devoid of any relationship that may have expectation of me. You cannot have this definition of freedom and be married, for example. It's not going to work. 
You cannot have this definition of freedom and be a parent, for example. It is simply not going to work. You cannot have this definition of freedom and be a friend that anyone could trust. It's just not going to work. What Mill describes is not freedom, but isolation. Being sovereign over my life. Being sovereign over my life is actually what Jesus came to save me from. Now, why would I take you back to a 19th century philosopher? It's because this theory of freedom is ubiquitous in our culture. It, is every, it shows up everywhere in our political conversation. It shows up in the church culture. I cannot be free unless I am free from them or free from them or free from you or free from those So when Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you, it is a prophetic word to our culture. We are not just a collection of individuals. We belong to one another. We belong to one another. Jesus says, live like you belong to one another and people will notice. Live like you are committed to one another and they will pay attention. And they will hunger to be part of it. Because we want to belong. So you, many of you, many of you know me well enough to know that one of the traumas of my childhood was that my parents had given me a middle name that many considered to be a feminine name. By many, I mean everybody in the world but my parents. (laughs) When I complained about being named Lorraine, My mother's actual response was, Tom, how could you? Lorraine is such a sweet name. (laughs) She actually thought this would comfort me in the second grade. But with time, that which was an embarrassment to me has become something I cherish. I know of no other man named Lorraine save one. I'm a junior. (laughs) Which is more than a subtle statement of belonging. We all want to belong. We all want to know that there's a place in this world for us. The good news of this gospel is that you belong. There is no circumstance that can change that because your belonging is not something you created. It is a gift. As Christians, we bear the name of the one whose love will never let us go. It is a more than subtle statement of belonging. Because we belong to Christ, because we all belong to Christ. We, by definition, belong to one another. And in our culture, to love one another is a prophetic practice. But this commandment is also a pastoral word. It is a pastoral word because the reality is we can live surrounded by people all day long. And we are a lonely culture. We are a lonely people. There was a season in American piety when the favorite hymn across the country was a hymn called In the Garden. Do you know it? Do you hold it with the same affection that I do? And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I'm his own. And the joy we share while we tarry there, none other has ever known. Evidently, the best thing about that garden is there ain't nobody else in there. 
It's just you and Jesus, all right? And you don't have to put up with other folk. You don't have to put up with church, for example. It's just you and Jesus. Now, that, that hymn has, has diminished in its popularity, but it has a grandchild today, and the grandchild is named, I'm spiritual but not religious. It just means that I, I, I'm good with God. It's just God's people that get on my nerves. And while I can, I can understand that on occasion... It's not a practice of faith where one is called to love one another. Following Jesus has always been preferable to following Jesus with everybody else who's following Jesus. But the problem is you can't actually follow Jesus without bumping into everybody else who's following Jesus. It is a communal activity. We live in a lonely culture. You no doubt have had lonely seasons yourself. John Cassiopo, he's the director of the Center for Cognitive and Social Neuroscience at the University of Chicago, and I have just told you more than I understand about that. But in his book, Loneliness, he says, we are experiencing an epidemic of loneliness. People who identify themselves as chronically lonely show higher levels of epinephrine in their system. It's a stress hormone. Their white blood cell counts are altered. Capioso writes, when we are lonely, our entire body is lonely. This commandment to love one another can be pretty simple. It's just a call, as the old ordination vow says, to be a friend among your colleagues in ministry. But the thing about friendship, it requires practice. To be a friend takes time. Friendship does not just occur. To be a friend, you have to let your calendar reflect your heart. The church is not first a collection of beliefs. The church is not first a collection of mission efforts. The church is first a network of friendship. Nurturing those relationships is a pastoral practice in a lonely world. Ruth. Ruth was a woman who was in the first church that I served, a congregation that ordained me. God will be gracious to them for that reason alone. They put up with a lot. After worship, Ruth stood back in the narthex every week and she She filled the narthex with laughter. She was just surrounded by a cloud of giggles. Everyone wanted to talk to Ruth because she's the one who could make you feel better about yourself than you are in real life. She could lift your spirits. I always admired Ruth, but then when I learned her story, I was amazed by her. I was visiting with her one time, and she told me about Ryan. Ryan... She was married to Ryan. He never came to church. Ryan was a sailor, not professionally. It was the passion of his heart. Together they taught their three boys how to sail before they were middle schoolers. Their middle son, Philip, had just graduated from college when he and some buddies, they took the boat and they headed out to sea. Ruth said the storm came out of nowhere. It took them two days to find the boat. They never found the boys. I was young. I was stupid. I'm not young anymore. I said, Ruth, you are so happy now. How did you ever get over it? She looked at me and she just smiled and she said, Tom, 
Mamas don't get over that. But let me tell you what I learned when I was in the valley of the shadow. Time I learned that, that we all have sadness. Everyone knows the dark night. Everyone knows heartbreak. And every day, Tom, the sadness is waiting. And I don't know if it will come to me with coffee in the morning paper. I don't know if it will penetrate my dreams. I don't know if it will whisper to me in worship. I don't know if it will haunt me down in the grocery. But I know it is there every day. And every day I pray, God, don't let the sadness win. God, don't let it win. Let me push back the sadness, not only in my life, but in the life of those I encounter today. Help me push back the sadness. And she said to me, she said, Tom, I'm not a smart woman, and this may seem silly to you, but I know how to laugh, and I know how to make others laugh. And it sort of feels like my ministry. She was right. Forgive my simplicity. We live in a lonely world, and I don't know anybody who doesn't need friends. It may not be the most profound reason, but it may be the most necessary reason. You give your money to make sure that Riverside keeps on being Riverside. People that remember that at least this we are called to love one another. It's a holy dream, if you ask me. Just keep Riverside being Riverside. And you do that, and there will be folks in this city whom this city has passed by and whom everything else has suggested to them that they do not belong, but you will tell them, no, you belong because we all belong to one another, because we all belong to God. Just keep Riverside being Riverside. There will be children in your midst who will not only learn to read, but they will learn that they belong and that they have calling, and that they have purpose in this world. Keep Riverside being Riverside so that the promises you make to your littlest ones at this baptismal font are kept and honored, practiced. Keep Riverside being Riverside. So when you come in, when you come in to bear witness to the promise of the resurrection and those who have passed on to glory, those promises are familiar trusted and known. My dream is that Riverside would keep being Riverside because Ruth is right. The sadness is always waiting. So love one another and push back the sadness. Push back the loneliness. Together, you won't let the sadness win, and that will be good for you. And not for nothing. Jesus says loving one another like that may be the best way that they will know who we belong to. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.